this morning. And as Johnny said, maybe this is your first time here. I know we met a lot of people at Clarendon Day, and I know also know that uh, Redeemer's building has got some issues today, so they're not worshiping. So maybe you're here because um, you don't have a building. Man, the Church of God is big. Um, it, it exceeds Arlington. It's worldwide this morning. So as we come together, know that God is pulling together his people worldwide. We can take just strength in that to know that he always gathers his kids together um, around his table. And that's what we're doing today. And one of the main ways we get fed is through his word. So we're going to be finishing today. This is the end of Ecclesiastes. So we can all sigh a breath of relief. Ecclesiastes is just like just, you know, there's this little three-year-old kid, and he's licking a sucker, and somebody comes and just smashes it in front of him. And he's crying, and why are you so mean? And it feels like that. Um, but we need to wrap this up today because it's so important and so good and understand that God is feeding us. So we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. So you can put your thumb there. Um, we'll have it up on the screen as well. We have some Bibles in the back if you'd like to follow along, and please take that as a gift. Before we jump into the text, I want you to listen to these words and see if you remember a day when maybe they were spoken to you. I love you. Get out and don't come back. You are a disappointment. You're hired. You're fired. Please forgive me. I am so sorry. You are amazing. Have any of these words ever been spoken to your face? If so, you have a vivid memory of when that happened, what was happening to you, and that emotion just floods back when you hear those words. And it probably changed the direction of your life. God has invested in words the power of life and the power of death. His word, scripture, is invested with us. These words are creative. They create the reality we live in, the sandbox we play in. They are living and active. You're not just reading his word. It is reading you as you open it up and as you allow the spirit of God to work that into you. And it changed how you see everything. And know this, God is meeting us as we jump in. Words matter. Uh, there's a man by the name of Leo Tolstoy. Uh, he's a 19th century Russian, or was a 19th century Russian author and aristocrat. Uh, wrote, well, a book maybe you've heard of, uh, War and Peace, or its modern name, or what is, what is it good for? Um, listen to what he says about how you learn and what you're convinced of. He says, the most difficult subjects can be explained to the most slow-witted man if he has not formed any idea of them already. But the simplest thing cannot be made clear to the most intelligent man if he is firmly persuaded that he knows already without a shadow of a doubt what is laid before him. As we have walked through Ecclesiastes, your convictions about what you believe have been challenged severely. Might have been. What you expect from life has been challenged and you've been confronted. Stay there. Stay there. Um, God is speaking to us. He's done that. He always does that when you open his word. He has spoken to you. And if you've heard his voice, you're going to feel corrected and you're going to feel like your, your soul is just unseated a little bit. 
Um, it will destroy your convictions and it will create new ones. I'm asking you to give him the freedom to do that. And, and here's what this is going to feel like to you. Maybe this feels familiar. There's a clarity that comes to you, especially as you read Ecclesiastes, and it rips out of our hand the things that we hold dear. It, it, it's just a clarity and it feels severe. Um, there's also a comfort, a strange comfort. It's not a comfort that tells you the things that you want to know. It's the comfort that comes from hearing things you don't want to know. But it gives you a good pain. And this will produce in you an urgency. You cannot walk out of God's word, especially this book that we've been walking through, Ecclesiastes, and not have kind of a new urgency in your life because of what you understand clearly and because of what God has placed in your hands and the comfort that you have in him. So we're going to read just the last part of Ecclesiastes, and I want you to think through that. Um, what has been clear in this book? Um, what has brought me comfort? And what kind of urgency do I have as we finish up this book? So let me read it for us. Chapter 12, verses 9 through 14 to the end. Here we go. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Here we go. The end of the matter... All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment and with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you that you reveal yourself actively today. That we don't go without our questions unanswered, even so we know some won't be answered this side of eternity. So our prayer today as we gather as your people, would you open up this word, Lord, that we might behold its beauty and its treasure. Would you do that for us? Would you create in us, Lord, that which you seek? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. God's word is going to do this to us. God's word is going to bring you clarity that's painful. It's going to bring you a comfort that you need to learn to live in because it actually feels a little uncomfortable, especially at first. And it will produce an urgency in your life that will not let you settle outside of what God wants for you, wants you to know. God's words does that. And we're going to walk through this. This is basically an epilogue. So we're going to just take a few minutes to summarize what has been clear in Ecclesiastes. Uh, what has brought us comfort and what has been urgent, what has brought us urgency in our life. So let's just walk through this epilogue together. And to do that, we have to really revisit the main question of Ecclesiastes. What was the preacher or Kohelet or Solomon, what did he want to answer? It's very simple, and he answered it over and over and over throughout the rest of the book. Uh, chapter 1, verse 3, he says, What does man gain by all the toil in which he toils under the sun? In other words, is there any way to get ahead in life? Is there? 
Is there a way in which I can take what God has given me and get ahead? Can I create dignity and meaning and value in my life? Can I do that? And he looked at work, wisdom, relationships, money, acquisition, accomplishments, intelligence, education. And this is what he came up with, chapter 2, verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and all the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So we just have to answer this question. We'll let him do it. Is there any way to get in head life? Is there? I mean, honestly, is there any way to get ahead in this life? And this is going to be painful, but there's not. There's a reason, though. There's a reason. Life is a gift. This question has just pierced everything we've read. Is life gift or gain? Life is a gift. It's not about you. It's not about your gain. So, one of the most important questions we have is, what is your relationship with the giver? What is our relationship with the giver? So as this epilogue starts up, we hear a second voice in Ecclesiastes. It's the first voice that we heard when we opened up way back in the beginning of the summer. And I remember that we talked about it. It was a little bit like this is a podcast where Solomon is getting interviewed, maybe like um, Art of Charm or something like that, Life Hacks. And at the end of it, the, the narrator steps back in and says, let's make sense of what we've heard. What does this mean? Um, and so this is, this is the role that this text has today. The interviewer jumps back in to the mic to help us make sense of what Solomon has said. And we have three incredible gifts here, and we're just going to walk through them and open them up together. The clarity and the comfort and the urgency that he's given us. So let's just walk through this clarity that we have received from the Song of Solomon. The first is this, vanity. This scripture has given it word 39 times. Vanity, vanity, vanity. All life is vanity. What does that mean? Well, we, we've discussed it, but as we get to the end here, vanity is when your life is obscured by false hope. Period. When you hold on to false hope. So here's what that can look like. Hold, finding false hope in your innate ability and your willpower to succeed. There's people out here I know in this church, they have extreme willpower. They can get things done. When they attack a problem, it usually gets solved. Vanity. If you're finding hope in that. Secondly is your track record of success and your education. Um, I heard a story this week about somebody who was denied. You can't marry this person because you don't have your master's yet. No, this really happens in our city. You need to know that. This is how we value education, as if it's going to save us. Education is great, and your professional success is great, but it's never going to save you. It's false hope. Your status is a victim in life. When we have that status, we will believe that surely God loves me more because I've got the raw end of the deal here. Or this is a big one for us, the fortress and the security of your family and your money and your reputation. We will hold on to these for as long as we have them and it becomes a false hope. Or your ability to control circumstances. Very close to success. But if you make wise decisions and you're, you just have, you just do well, that becomes a false hope for you. And even our religion. You can know a lot about the Bible but never know the author. 
This is holding on to false hope. So vanity, it should feel like this. It's like walking a well-known trail that you know it. You've been on it before. You hike this mountain, but it's foggy. Visibility is maybe a quarter mile, and you're walking up the trail. And as the day breaks and the sun gets clear, you have no idea where you're at. You're like, just, I don't even recognize this place anymore. Where are we? This is what vanity feels like at the end of your life when you realize you wasted it. So we don't want that. We want clarity. We don't want a life that is obscured by false hope. We want a life that is secured by this one hope, this one shepherd that we get introduced to here. Um, This is what clarity does for us. Listen to Psalm 62. For God alone my soul waits. We've sang this song for the last two weeks. Not today, I don't think. But for God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. This is where our hope is. This is why Solomon says, don't anchor your hope under the sun or anything that will be buried with you. You must look above it to the one who created all that we enjoy. So how does clarity help? This is the first way. By showing you what's not important. And this is the painful part of it. So much of what we hold on to, these things that we mentioned, just don't matter. Yeah, yes, success matters. I want you to be successful. And yes, your education matters. You should educate yourself so that you're the most useful to society, that you can do well. This does matter. But in the end of the day, what you do can never change who you are, especially before God. But as we'll learn, who you are before God always changes what you do. So this is, this is what has become clear. It feels like being lost on a mountain. Now, How he wants to direct us in this is in verse 11. He says, The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by the one shepherd, by God. What's your relationship to pain (laughs) when it comes to Scripture? Can I just ask you that? Do you know what a goad is? Yeah, you probably don't. I had to verify and look it up. It's basically a stick with a nail on it. And if you grew up on a farm, you know exactly what it is. And it sounds mean, but this is how life works, okay? So you use the goad to get the cattle or to get the animals to go down the track, to get into the barn. Um, A little bit of pain keeps them on the correct track. Without that, they will get lost or they will just, they'll hurt themselves. So pain is used to change direction in these animals. And Song of Solomon is using this as an analogy to how Clarity produces pain. It does. God's word, if you hear it, will wound you. Um, not this summer, but last summer, my wife and I got to walk in Spain. This this pilgrimage, actually, it's called the, the Camino de Santiago. We didn't walk the whole thing. But one of the best experiences we had on it was when we sat down one early one morning. It was on a Sunday, and we were missing you guys. We hadn't been around for a while. And we sat next to this guy. He was very welcoming. He was very nice. And he was an old head, even older than me. And we just started to talk to this guy. And he could kind of see that we're a little bit down. And um, he said, he just, he just gave us this muffin, right? He just instantly started sharing with us. And he told us that his wife had died. And this is why he was walking the Camino. They'd been married for like 40 plus years. And he was just, he just needed some time on his own. And he was a believer. In fact, he was an Anglican priest in uh, South Africa somewhere. And this is what he said. He said, you know what drew me to Christ? 
Jason? I said, no, Richard, I don't. And he, he quoted Psalm 32.8. He said, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay close to you. He said, when I knew that God was going to counsel me with his eyes on me, I just could not turn away from him. And so when we experience pain in our lives, it's not meant to drive you away from God. It's meant to pull us into the shepherd. And the pain that he was experiencing in losing his spouse was reuniting him and reconnecting him to God in ways that he hadn't seen in a long time. And he shepherded us. He encouraged us. This is what clarity does. It's a huge gift. But you will not receive clarity if you run away from the one shepherd, especially when you experience pain. So let me just ask you this. Has Ecclesiastes been painful? Have there been things that you have heard, that you have read in this book that feel like a nail on a stick? They cause pain. Friend, this is where Jesus is meeting you. Can I just encourage you in that? This is where the one shepherd is drawing you in and wants an audience with you. Don't back off. Don't back off. So God's word will deliver clarity that comes with pain, but also comfort. But it's a strange comfort. Verse 10. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. Um, this, is, this almost feels like it doesn't belong in, the, in Ecclesiastes, but pleasure. Uh, we, hear, we see so much of what seems like vanity and pain, but then we have these interludes where Solomon tells us, you need to enjoy your life. You need to eat and drink and enjoy the gifts that God has given you. Uh, there's comfort in pleasure. Life is a gift that is made to be enjoyed. Let me just recount one of those. Chapter 2, verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This I also saw was from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can have enjoyment? When you understand that the point of your life is not to seek gain or to define yourself, you can enjoy it. You can have comfort in pleasure. And here's how and why. One of the ways that he uses to teach us this is death. One of the things he could not get over is that the wise one, the righteous one, and those that shake their fist at God all have the same end. They end up in the dirt. The righteous and the wise, and the evil and the wicked. But one of the takeaways that is comforting for us in Ecclesiastes is that death removes this pressure. This pressure that you can ever create anything permanent or meaning under the sun where we live. Like this, I don't need all my dreams to come true. I don't need them to come true in this life. I don't. Because I'm a citizen of another kingdom. When you understand that, and when you understand that you are running headlong towards the end of your life, man, it just gives you comfort. It gives you comfort. Um, it's a little bit like this. When you're going on vacation, you know that your vacation's coming up and you can be gone for a couple weeks. And on Thursday, your boss drops a huge project on you. And you're just like, you know what? All right, I can do it. I can stay late. We're good. I got it. I'm, I'm out of here on Saturday. And that, 
this is simple and fleeting, but just work with me. It draws on the same emotion. When you know that your happiness is secured outside of what we're doing here, that your joy isn't secured in the relationship that you have with the living God, that it's not your work that's going to secure salvation, it is his work. When you start to believe that and start to walk that in your life, it will create a joy that is indelible, that cannot be squashed by what you suffer, even death. And Solomon means to, means to anchor us to that. So there's a strange comfort here. It comes in our perspective. It comes in even the pleasure that we can enjoy when we understand um, that this life is, is a gift to us from God. Um, and also there's comfort in judgment. And he said this for the last couple of weeks, but this is how the book ends. It's a weird way to end, but it makes so much sense. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So how is that comforting? How is this any comfort at all that we know that God will judge us? Well, step back for a minute. Knowing that a just God will justly judge, if you've ever experienced injustice or oppression, or if you've ever been sinned against, if you've ever been misunderstood, if you've ever been just... I know people that have been horribly sinned against. This should give you encouragement. There's, that is, God will bring every secret thing to account. And if you've been sinned against, that's not going to be overlooked. Ever. Ever. So I don't have to use this life to find justice. Now, we want justice. But there's a lot of people in this world that don't get it. And if you're one of them, this should bring you comfort. Secondly, how is this comforting? Your life has objective meaning. Everything that you do and don't do, we talked about this last week, everything that you do and don't do will be judged by God, his standards, his objective standards. You do not have to define your life in a way such that you can create meaning by who you are and what you do because God's going to judge you. It sounds harsh, especially in our environment, but it gives your life meaning. Because how you live matters. And lastly, we're going to pull this into the promise of Christ, the greater Solomon. Um, if you are trusting in Christ, this means that you're going to be judged in him. Do you understand that? Um, this is a strange way to look at the gospel, but we, we want to go there today. Jesus was asked um, in the gospels, the gospel of Matthew, hey, we're kind of tracking with you, but we need a sign. If we're going to trust in you, we need a sign. And some of the religious leaders were asking him. And this is how he responds, Matthew 12, verse 42. He says, The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. That brings a different viewpoint to judgment. They're asking, why should we trust you? And he says, well, do what you want, but know this. Those that have sought out God, like the queen of the south, probably from somewhere in Yemen, who came up to honor Solomon, came up to seek God, even people in this generation today, will judge you because you're wise in your own eyes. And you haven't received the gift that God has given you. You haven't taken the words of Solomon and let them drive you to Jesus, who's the greater Solomon. So why is Jesus greater than Solomon? Well, his kingdom didn't fail. He's a king that provides. 
Solomon didn't end well. His kingdom was crushed. Jesus' death didn't hold. He didn't stay under the sun. Man, this, this should matter to you. His resurrection is everything. God the Son takes on flesh, takes on dust, wears that curse on the cross, is validated by God the Father in resurrection, exists today in bodily form at the right hand of the Father and is interceding for us and you right now for his church worldwide, is pouring out the Spirit of God worldwide today, is active, is reigning. That should matter to you. This is where we anchor our hope. That's different than Solomon. He came to live with us under the sun, overcame sin, Satan, death. We hold on to him. This is where our trust is. This is where our comfort is. That's it. If you believe that, friend, you are just absolutely untouchable. Can I tell you that? When you stop fearing death and stop fearing life because of what you have in Christ, you will never live the same again. And this is the goal of Ecclesiastes, I believe. Do you have this strange comfort? Do you have that of knowing that your judgment day has occurred already in that Christ's death was real suffering and separation because of your sin? Will you let him have it? And his resurrection is proof that it was efficient and sufficient for you personally. I heard something this week, this was, it just really brought this to account for me. Um, and it was the story of adoption. And a friend was telling me that he was, I'm not exactly sure the relationship that he had with the family that was adopting, but they were fostering this girl. And she'd been around in different foster homes before. Um, it sounds to me like she was probably somewhere under 10. And here's what this girl knew, because she knew how the game was played. He said, usually every year about Christmas... The parents would sit down. The foster parents would say, hey, you know what? Um, we, it's just, this has been really good. We're glad that you came to stay with us. But um, we're just, we just, you're going to have to find it. We're going to have to get you another family, right? And it's just, you know, we love you, but we just can't keep you permanently. And she knew this is how it worked. And I don't know much about the foster care system, but you know what? That's just the way it works sometimes. And so she was with this family who she loved dearly. And they loved her. And then one day the dad said, hey, you know what? Um, before dinner, let's, can we sit down and talk? She's like, oh, here it is. Here it is. It's at late fall. It's going to happen. And the mom and the dad, the foster parents, sat down with her and said, well, we have some, some news we want to share with you. And um, you probably need to hear it from us. And you probably need to hear it now. And he said, um, we love you and we adopted you. You belong to us. And like, she started to visibly shake. She's like, what are you talking about? She's like, you have our name. You belong to us. You are our daughter. It was almost too much for her to take in. And as she explains it, she was living her life as a good girl so that they wouldn't kick her out. She wanted as long as time as possible. And the parents knew this was going to be a hard transition. He said, listen to me. Nothing is going to change the fact that our name belongs to you and you belong to us. Your behavior, your performance. Yes, we want you to, to live up to what it means to be a daughter in our house. But your performance is never going to make us reject you. You belong to us. You are a daughter here. 
You belong at this table. You no longer have to find a way to, to get a seat here because we love you and we have set our love on you legally. Nothing gonna break that. That is the gospel, my friend. That's it. If you lived your life exhausting yourself, trying to make sure that you succeed, trying to make sure that you do well enough so that God keeps you at his table, this book is going to take every hope out of your hands that that can ever happen, because it can't. Through the life and the death and the resurrection of God the Son, God the Father is offering you today grace that is eternal, that places you at his table. No rejection. Well, do I have to do anything? If you understand this, you will never stop loving him and letting your life be shaped by his law. You will delight in it. Not because of what it's earning you, but because you already have it. You are an heir of the living God. That is the gospel. That is the true Solomon. That is what Jesus has done for us. So, when you understand that, it is impossible not to have a fresh urgency in your life to please God. You delight in his law. And that's the third thing that we're going to talk about here. Urgency. Ecclesiastes has prepared you to move forward in life. It has. It's been harsh, but it's prepared you. Um, And here's the easiest way. I'm going to do this. It's really campy, but I thought it would be funny. Sorry. Hey Siri, what's the meaning of life? All evidence to date suggests it's chocolate. Yeah, okay. Take your pick. She says something different every time. But for some people, the meaning of life is chocolate, and that's good enough. And I'm kind of there sometimes. I love it. Um, Here's the meaning of life. Write it down if you want. It's in verse 12. Well, no, that's not where it is. (laughs) I'm never going to win at this game. It's at verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Solomon was better than you, friend. Back then, kings were scientists and basically priests. He's done more than you've done. He's had more than you've had. He looks better than you look. And this is what he's going to tell you to your face. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. When you are in Christ, life is no longer a race to find out what matters. This is the meaning of life. When you trust God like this, it will necessarily change what you're anxious about. Can I just tell you that? I can tell you what I'm anxious about. My whole life has been anxious about. And it always comes back to how I'm having to trust God right now. Man, if I can control your opinion of me, to me that's salvation. If I can get you to affirm me as a good fella, I win. That's what I'm afraid of. 
I'm afraid that you're not going to like me. When I came to Christ as a teenager, understanding that I no longer have to worry about what anybody else thinks about me, I have to worry about what God speaks into my life. And here's what he says, you're mine. That revolutionates my life, but it's never over. I always have to fight it. So trusting in God changes what you're anxious about. Um, If you're going to be anxious about one thing, be anxious that you understand the truth of the gospel and what it means that you're saved by grace through faith. Be anxious about believing that. Be anxious not about your future, but in fearing God. Be anxious that this faith that you have is shaping your life, or as he says, obeying God. You can tell a lot about yourself by what makes you angry. What gives an emotional response in your life that seems out of sorts? You know what will make me really sad? Or maybe even angry. If everybody turns on me. It's a world I can't live in. It's hard for me to do it. This is, this is where Ecclesiastes has got me. So Jason, you still anchor your hope in people's opinions. You need to let go of that. In fact, I'll break your knuckles to get your hand off that. What makes you angry and anxious? Your deepest fear is what you worship. I'm friend, I'm sorry. It is. What you think about when your mind is free is you're moving towards your God. Do not fear anything but God alone. Trust him, treasure him. So this is how Ecclesiastes wraps up. Live wholeheartedly for God. All of it. Everything you have. If he saved you completely by grace, not depending on your work at all, there's nothing he cannot ask of you. And he's asking for your whole life. Give it to him. You're never going to be sad. Live wholeheartedly for God. Trust him. Love Jesus. Well, I don't, know, I don't know him. Okay, get to know him. Get to know him. Obey the scriptures. Right. Love his law. Like Psalm starts out, but the delight of Psalm 1, the delight of the law is, is what it just, it just moves me. I no longer just read ink on paper. I'm hearing the Lord speak to me. Think of others before yourself. In other words, follow God's lead. Um, and rest. Calm down, friends. Take a break. You're living for stuff that just isn't going to matter when you're in the grave. Relax a little bit. Relax a little bit. Um, has Ecclesiastes unseated your soul? Has Solomon got there with you? Are you still finding comfort in the wrong things? Where you at? It it matters. Um, When I was learning to fly years ago, my flight instructor was a grouchy old um, Air Force pilot who had retired and he had flown a B-52, and he was an instructor. And he always, the cool thing about learning from an old pilot like that is they have just story after story after story. So that was half the fun of learning from him. And he told me this story. He was flying an old, an old DC-3, but for, if anybody doesn't know that, it's an old, um, it's like the first airliner. It carries like 20 people, and the military used it way back when. Um, it's, it's an old ratchety plane. He was flying somewhere in Southeast Asia. He's very young. He's like 25 years old. He's a captain. He's in command of this plane. And he's flying a bunch of people, repositioning them. And he takes off out of this mountainous region and loses an engine. Now, there's a reason a DC-3 has two engines, because it needs two engines to fly, right? It's not like a modern jet that can fly in one engine very well. So it basically just takes you to the scene of the crash. He's flying out, 
and he, you know, he, he was smart, so he noticed, hey, I've, he cleaned up his engine, got everything squared away. He's on one engine now, but he's sinking at about 300 to 500 feet per minute. And that's as good as it's going to get. And he's like, hey, wait a minute. I know math. I know that I was climbing out of this airport at about 500 feet per minute. If I can keep my sink rate below 500 feet per minute, I'll get back to the airport. But it was close. So he turns around to everybody in the airplane. Right? All these soldiers. He's like, get rid of everything now. Everything. Everything that's not classified, get rid of it. They're like, are you kidding me? This is everything I have while I'm deployed. He's like, do you want to die with it in your hands? No, sir. Get it out. So they're just, you know, there's an open door. The door's open. And they're just kicking out foot lockers and everything. It just, it all goes out. And they get back to the airport and they land. Exhale, right? You kind of need to decide if you're willing to die with something in your hands that isn't of God. It's that dire. It is. As we've had this series, I'm going to ask you this question. What's the one area in your life that has continued to bubble up to the surface as we preach through Ecclesiastes? Where do you feel conviction? What do you have a death grip on? What is it? Man, God is graceful. He loves you, friend. He's never going to let you be comfortable with that. Give it to him. Give it to him. This is what God's word does to us. It gives you clarity. And pain has a purpose. Stay close to your shepherd. Do that. Comfort. There is no greater comfort than knowing that you belong to God and it's not because of you. It's because of his intense love for you and what he's done. An urgency. Your life is a gift. Don't waste it. Give it to him. Give it to him. Pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much. Um, you're good. You're good. I attest that just publicly, that your love is like nothing else, and that your grace is life-giving, and that salvation in you is not apprehending a new worldview or doing the right thing. It is total surrender to the one that loves us. I pray as we end this book, as we end this good gift, which is Ecclesiastes, that all the painful clarity it's brought to us, Lord, and all the good comfort that we have, and all the urgency that you've given us as a church will not be lost. We thank you for the gift of your son. And we pray that you would make us a family that does not fear death. That does not fear life, Lord. But that we can live entirely to your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen. Uh, we're going to continue in worship with our offering. So I'll ask the ushers to come forward and um, grab those baskets.